You're listening to a classic business podcast as heard on Classic 1027. 1027. As millions around the world try and cope with the disruptions caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, the questions and the challenges facing present and future generations of workers are really thrown into even starker relief. And it's at this time that we must increasingly be led by science. I think scientific endeavor is enjoying uh, some uh, notable breakthroughs of late with the Event Horizon Telescope giving us a glimpse of a black hole. There's some interesting stuff happening at uh, CERN, which challenges the standard model in physics. And uh, South Africa can be rightly proud of its involvement in the square kilometre array. Now, one thing that is certain is that the need for lifelong learning has never been more fundamental in the world. And the University of Pretoria is hosting a Nobel Prize dialogue on what working life will mean in the future with several Nobel Prize laureates. One of them is uh, joining us now on this panel, Professor Brian Schmidt, Distinguished Professor of Astronomy, the 12th Vice-Chancellor of Australia National University, ANU, and uh, one of Australia's most eminent scientists, a winner of the 2011 Nobel Prize in Physics. And uh, as we know, the universe's stars and galaxies are not uh, shrinking or uh, moving closer together, as one might have thought. They're actually now moving away from one another, thanks to the discovery by Brian Schmidt and uh, his team. He uh, made the discovery with colleagues Saul uh, Pearl Murta and uh, Adam Rees, and uh, they studied exploding stars called supernova. And uh, because of the light emitted by stars, uh, it appears weaker from a larger distance and it takes on a reddish hue as it moves further from the observer. The researchers were able to determine how the supernova moved. And in 1998, they reached a, a surprising result that the universe is expanding in fact, at an ever-increasing rate. Professor Schmidt, welcome to the show. And you're also joined now by Laura Spreckman, who is uh, CEO of the Nobel Prize uh, Outreach and uh, the Vice-Chancellor and Principal of the University of Pretoria, Professor Tawana Coupe. So thank you all for joining us. Uh, Professor Schmidt, perhaps you can kick us off because we're talking about the future of work. But before we do that, I'd like just to talk a little bit about your work and the journey that got you um, on the way to do the work that saw you win the 2011 uh, Nobel Prize for Physics. You grew up in America, in Montana, I believe. Yeah, I grew up uh, in a very remote part of the U.S. and then moved to even a more remote part, uh, Alaska. So probably uh, not a normal journey for a Nobel Prize winner, but I think it shows that it can come from almost anywhere uh, these days. And that's part of the future of work, of course, that we're going to be talking about. And our conception of the universe really has changed quite radically over the centuries. It's even changed dramatically over the last century. If you look only 100 years ago, the Milky Way was the extent of the known universe. Uh, around about the first part of the 20th century, we were starting to get a hint that it was just a little bit bigger than that. Uh, and when you were doing your PhD and moving into your postdoc in the early 90s, what did the universe look like back then? Well, back in the mid-1990s, when I finished my PhD, uh, I, it really looked to me like the universe, uh, you know, kind of had this dark matter that we're still trying to figure out, was expanding, but almost certainly slowing down. And the big question was, was it slowing down a little bit and would therefore expand forever? Or was it slowing down a lot because it had a lot of stuff in it? It would eventually stop expanding, go in reverse and end with what we like to call the Ganab Gib, which is the Big Bang Backwards. Now, when you finished your PhD and you started on your research after that, 
What really motivated you? What were the sorts of questions that you wanted to answer at that point, given that context? Well, for me, it struck me as we had an opportunity to ask the question, is the universe going to exist forever? Is the universe infinite or is it finite? Is it going to have a beginning and an end? Is it without end uh, in space or does it wrap around itself in a four-dimensional, hard to get your head around four dimensions, ball? Uh, So that was a big question. And I realized when I finished my PhD or about a year after that I and the people around me as a team had a chance to answer that question. Will the university last forever? And that struck me as about as big a question as one could ask. And amazing that humanity had got to the point where it could actually answer that question. That is the phenomenal progress of scientific endeavor, isn't it? That the layers that are built upon from uh, uh, from decade to decade, from century to century to build onto that pyramid of knowledge that takes us to the cusp of understanding. So it takes me to the cusp of your Nobel Prize then. It was a paper published back in 1998. Tell me a little bit about that particular project that you embarked on in the mid-90s that eventually led to the Nobel Prize. Yeah, so since 1929, Edwin Hubble realized the universe was expanding. And as you said in your introduction, you figure out how fast the universe is expanding by seeing how far away an object is and how much light has been stretched by the expansion of the universe between that object and what we see now. And you just divide those two numbers, that tells you how fast the universe is expanding. And essentially it tells you how fast the universe is moving apart. So what we were able to do with the technology of 1994-1995 is use telescopes and new digital uh, digital cameras, ones that are the precursors of the ones we all use now, uh, developed out of astronomy, uh, and we could take pictures of objects so far away, supernovae, that their light would take billions upon billions of years to reach us. And so rather than just measuring how fast the universe was expanding now, like Hubble did in 1929, we could measure how fast it was expanding back in time. And so that was how I was gonna measure the future of the universe. Measure back in time and see how fast the universe was slowing down over time. So we went out and did that project starting in 1994. And by 1998, we had our answer. Universe was not slowing down at all. It was speeding up. That is definitely the hand in your homework and say, I tried my best. I got the wrong answer, but I hope you'll get me some partial credit. It's a great point you make uh, because you were expecting an entirely different outcome, as as I'm sure many would have uh, anticipated. How did you respond with your colleagues at that time, uh, knowing that you had found something that was so counter to what uh, um, the, the the considered an intuitive science uh, might have led you to believe? I mean, uh, you you must have just said, well, we've got to publish it because the data is there. What was going through your mind? Well, the first thing we thought was, oh, geez, what have we done wrong? So <laughs> we just went through it bit by bit by bit to try to find what was wrong. As my PhD supervisor said, In our heart of hearts, we know this answer is wrong. And yes, our mind says, we just got to publish the data. But the reality is, you know, this is the way science works, is you do your best. And we went through and with the team, we said, we're going to go through and try to find every single thing we could do wrong. 
But if in the end we don't find that it's wrong, we have to publish it. And we're probably wrong for reasons, you know, in the Donald Rumsfeld, the unknown unknowns. Uh, those are the things we're really worried about. But we knew we could knock off all the known unknowns. And that's what we did is we went up through Donald Rumsfeld's known unknowns until we could come up with nothing else that could be wrong. That's when we published. And uh, well, you have so far proven to be entirely correct because nobody has been able to pick up any of those unknown unknowns either. And so uh, you were awarded the Nobel Prize uh, in 2011 for the work. But I want to focus on something that was quite unique about that 98 paper. It was a, a Bayesian statistical analysis. Now, you may look at uh, those today and say they're commonplace. But back then, that must have been pretty groundbreaking. Did you have those skills back then? And and I ask that because it goes uh, to this point of the future of work and why we need to be able to continually adapt in the world of work. Just take me back to that moment. Well, we were trying to analyze the data and we were really struggling with how to use what we were taught at university, statistical analysis, which are what we call frequentist statistics, because there are big parts of parameter space that are just not allowed. And we had information from one source and another. And so uh, a professor who we knew at Harvard, Bill Press is his name. He was a great statistical guru. He said, no, no, you've got to use Bayesian statistics. And we said, oh, we've heard of Bayes, but we've never really done much with him. Uh, and he said, OK, well, this is what you do. And you needed to have a lot of computational might to use Bayes in a Bayes framework. Uh, but we had that. Computers had gotten stronger. And so we were able to go through and use Bayesian statistics to calculate what our data meant. And that was stuff we had to teach ourselves as part of the analysis. We did not learn it. And indeed, if we had not learned it, we would not have been able to make our measurement. So you have to keep learning as you go on. And that's true for me to this day. I still have to learn things if I'm gonna be good at my job running a university, for example. And that is uh, your, your new role now as, uh, as running the, the ANU. And I'm sure you're seized with this question of, COVID and its impact on the future and the world of work. Just before I bounce that question over to uh, Professor Coupe, how are you grappling with this issue? As, uh, as we know, um, universities in the West have come under attack from populist leaders. There, there potentially is a trust deficit in, in the likes of America, but, uh, mostly. We don't seem to have that issue uh, so much in the global South, as we like to call ourselves here in South Africa. How are you grappling with some of these questions at AIM? Yeah, and we, we're part of the global South here in Australia, so we're comrades <laughs> in arms. What, what I'm trying to do is to make sure we don't buy into the highly polarized uh, uh, populist rhetoric, but rather to make sure that the university adds value by educating people, making sure we're really inclusive and try to reach out to all parts of Australia, our region and the world to make sure we bring in people. So it's not just us talking to ourselves, making sure we tell our stories. And we have some of that same backlash here, but it's really important to be honest with people, transparency and inclusion, making sure they realize we're not the enemy, rather we're there to help and uh, be something of value to everyone, regardless of their background, really important. 
And Professor Coupe, I mean, if, if you read historian Yuval Noah Harari and uh, Sapiens and 21 Lessons, he's really well known for being something of a techno-pessimist, that the future of work disruption, he says, is going to be unlike anything we've ever experienced as a species. And it's not the, the, that example of what the loom meant uh, in historically meaning more space for loom engineers type disruption, but more like the network effect of AI and machines making millions of people redundant now. So there is genuine concern about what the future of work looks like because of our scientific and technological advancements. How do you see the future of work? So, so I think that uh, when you look at the potential of the technology, and this, this has nothing to do necessarily with the current advancing technologies that are disrupting particular spaces more rapidly than before, that technology is a double-edged sword. Its potential can become an equalizer, an enabler, and create capacity and include people that have previously been excluded. But if not managed by the what I call the social shaping end of human beings and social policy and regulation, it could actually become one that breeds discrimination and widens inequalities. The technology does not deploy, deploy itself. But if not shaped by particular kinds of discourses, hence the importance of the Nobel Prize dialogues, the reason why I thought we should do future of work, can actually, if you like, widen uh, inequalities in a, in, a, in a society like South Africa. But we've seen an, a number of very interesting things. Take South Africa, for example. The, the, the landline telephones were hardly reaching you know, more than 20% of the population before 1994 and up to 1994. But the advent of the mobile phone it now looks like every South African has two phones, two mobile phones, including the poor people. But a lot is being done on those, on, the, on, on, on those phones. If you extend it to the rest of Africa, financial inclusion, for example, the ability to be able to exchange money and send money through mobile networks is actually enabled people to be able to be part of a formal economy and to be able to run micro enterprises out of the technology platforms, if you like. So with a population that is growing younger on the African continent, technology is going to be one of those tools we can use for greater inclusion and for connecting Africans to global, global markets and to benefit from all the more positive elements of globalization. Joseph Stiglitz will be part of this, uh, of this, of this dialogue. He's written quite a lot in his book, uh, Globalization and this Discontents, and shown how a globalization that is not regulated and is not shaped by positive progressive policies can actually make us lose the potential of the technology. But one that is actually carefully managed to spread equality, to enable people to have sustainable livelihoods. And for us in higher education, technology is also an enabler. The ability to be able to teach online and combine it with face-to-face -face teaching is something at the University of Pretoria we have enjoyed. Of course, uh, the, of course, what the pandemic has done is to speed us along, uh, seeing what the potential of the technology to teach and to learn is, and even to do research using virtual reality uh, laboratories and related technologies. So uh, one should not be, I'm not a technological determinist. On the other hand, I'm also not a technological pessimist. There, the road is somewhere in the middle. And what is important is to have these kinds of discourses to see what mm. is going to be in the best interest. My last point, in the, in the media sphere where I am a professor, is you've seen the same phenomenon I'm talking about. Some of what you see, the spreading of fake news, skepticism towards experts and evidence based, is spread through social media. Vaccination hesitancy is spread through social media. So I slightly disagree with you, 
when you said it's not affecting us as much, I think we are in that space. Vaccination, hesitation, and other conspiracy theories spread mm. through social media. But social media has been used actually by NGOs, journalists, politicians, progressive uh, organizations to actually, in a sense, transcend uh, the limitations and constraints of mainstream media. But the doubters, the fakers, and the conspirators are on those platforms 24-7. And I think a, a great point, uh, uh, huge uh, benefits that are brought by social media now, Ferguson addresses those in the, in the square and the tower. Uh, and quite interesting, the, the, the effects that social media are, are having in terms of uh, democratizing access to information and creating communities, but also on the other side of that, creating communities around conspiracy and, uh, and, and denialists uh, of, of all persuasions and hues, be it uh, climate change denialists or, or anti-vaxxers. And that's why I think uh, conversations like this are so critical. Laura, to bring you in, and uh, as uh, the Nobel outreach, how important uh, is having events like this in, in terms of uh, broadening the reach firstly of the Nobel Prize and opening up what is and can seem to be a rather ivory tower type conversation amongst academia and bringing that down to the more grassroots level? Yes, well, uh, as you know, that the, the Nobel Prize has awarded work and discoveries who have conferred the greatest benefit to humankind. And, uh, and that's in various areas, right? I mean, we, we just heard about physics. So we, we have the sciences, we have humanities, we, and we have peace efforts. So, so um, we have a unique opportunity to, to address topics from very different angles and perspectives and, and expertise. And, and that's what makes it interesting to, to gather people from completely different areas to look at, well, what do we know about this at the moment and what are our big challenges? And, and this discussion, uh, rather than just, you know, sending your own messages, makes it much more uh, inclusive, participatory. People have really the, the opportunity to, to reflect. It's, it's free to attend. We, we reach out to people via, you can, you, can, you can look at it via your phone if you like. So that's, that's the whole idea of it. And, and um, well, as we just heard from, from uh, Professor Brian Schmidt, uh, his discovery is a great example of the incredible ability of, 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 of humans to, to not only ask very good, good questions, but also to answer them. And, and, and this, these, these breakthroughs in, in, in basic science will also lead to, to different applications and improve our technologies. And, and here we go, uh, increasing our knowledge. And what, what is important, and, and COVID is a good example where um, the, the international scientific community managed to develop a vaccine in, in a incredible, at incredible speed, um, that, that is not enough. We need to be better at making good decisions. We need to be better at collaborating, at including the whole planet in whatever benefits we reap. And there, I think we have quite, quite a, a, a ground yet to cover. And, and, and that's what I think will be interesting also when we speak about the future of work, right? It's, it's this combination of, of uh, scientific skills, of, of, of technology and um, empathy, respect for, for others, the, the, the ability to, to uh, 
to um, make good decisions together, um, debil de deliberation. So um, it's it's um, it's it's th that's the way I think we will solve our problems, like health issues, like climate change and uh, inequality and others. So um, I look re I really look forward to the discussions. Yeah, and I think couldn't come at a more important juncture in time. But to come back to you, Professor Schmidt, what, what I see from my vantage point uh, looking at the economy and business daily is a K-shaped recovery from this crisis where uh, we're seeing those with skills and those who are able to go and work remotely um, less impacted and less affected than blue-collar workers and those who perhaps didn't have the skills or the ability to, uh, to work remotely. And so broadening the inequality that we saw in South Africa as one of the most unequal countries on earth, but all over the world. And I guess the big challenge for us now as we address this theme of the future of work is how to address that rising inequality. Yeah, well, it's certainly uh, mirrored everywhere, I think in all societies. And as indicated, uh, it, it's a real double-edged sword or I'd say, you know, it's like a tale of two cities. It's gonna be the best of times, it's gonna be the worst of times. So the technology is going to allow South Africans and indeed all of Africa access to the global economy, uh, being able to bypass all these restrictions that used to be there, but only for those people who are masters of the technology, who have the education and enough social capital and talent to get above a certain threshold. So it's gonna be this threshold where if you're above it, you're gonna take off and you're gonna be much better off. Below that threshold, then all of the advances are actually going to displace you and what you can do in the economy. And so through education and through government programs, we can make sure that we get as many people above their threshold as we can so that they're able to be masters of their, of their future, uh, taming the digital uh, capabilities out there. Uh, and then you're going to have to take care of people who don't make that threshold and ensure it doesn't become intergenerational, making sure that if someone misses out, their children don't miss out, their family doesn't miss out, their communities don't miss out. You really need to be equalizing. And if we don't do that, then uh, society will fracture. And we're, gonna, we're seeing this in the developed world. We're seeing it in the developing world. It's a place where I think it's gonna equalize some of the problems we have in the developed world. They're gonna translate, unfortunately, straight into the developing world. That also, I think, uh, Professor Coupe, to, uh, to bring you back into the conversation, is an area where perhaps in the developing world where we've been dealing with this bifurcated labor market for such a long time, we, we might uh, be at an advantage in, in order to help lead the way in terms of leapfrogging certain challenges, developing systems like basic income grants, for example, to Professor Schmidt's point, to ensure that we don't forget about those who don't make that threshold of, of skill uh, to take advantage of the tech, uh, technology and the technologically driven future that uh, presents itself. Uh, as a university, how do you see your role in bridging that gap and shaping that future? 
Well, as Prof. Smith said, the digital divide exists between what is called the Global North and the Global South, understanding that Australia is part of both the Global North and the Global South geographically, but technologically based part of the Global North. But there's a digital divide within the Global South itself, if you like. So what ought to happen in this space, and this is an urgent policy and, and, and operational measure, expanding broadband access to all and subsidizing it is greater benefits for all of society than allowing the digital divide to actually depend. Because as you're quite right, if you broaden broadband access, reduced data prices, you know that's a problem uh, even in South Africa. We have uh, uh, mobile connectivity on the mobile, uh, 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 very much so, but the data is very expensive for most people. What you need to do actually is to make sure that there's at least an equal level a level playing field for everybody in that space. Let me give you a concrete example. When COVID struck and way to go online at the University of Pretoria, it meant that every student must have a laptop or an internet connected device. And I've got 55,000 students at one of the largest universities. I was afraid that perhaps half the students might not necessarily have a laptop. There were fewer, but there were still a, 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 about a couple of thousands or so, up to 3,000 without. First principle I passed is that no student left behind. So before we could resume, we mobilized funds internally and from philanthropists and donors to ensure every student had a laptop and could actually connect. Some students couldn't, but it was a hundred or so because they live in areas where connectivity does not exist. So we had to use some other means to have them participate and, we, and when regulations are allowed, I brought them back into residence so they can enjoy the, 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 the high connectivity environment. So that ought to be scaled up to the rest of the society. No school should be without connectivity, no hospital without connectivity, no neighborhood in the community without connectivity. Because we know when there's connectivity in all of those areas, Africans have shown interesting ingenuity, innovation and entrepreneurship, which in a sense, it begins to address the socioeconomic inequalities. Mm -hmm. So the digital divide is a marker of many other inequalities. And as Prof. Smith rightly said, if you're not careful to address that, you will fracture the society and increase social tension and unrest. And you will not achieve the sustainable development goals uh, by, by 2030. We need uh, every citizen's potential to be able to be harnessed through the use of these very exciting digital technologies that allow for all form of connectivity, interaction, dialogue and debate, and innovative entrepreneurship and, and making a sustainable livelihood. Laura, just as we reach in the end of our conversation now, the decision to bring this dialogue to South Africa, focusing on the future of work at this time, just take me through the background to that decision and, and hopefully what you, you're likely to achieve through hosting the dialogue here in South Africa. Yes, it's actually the first time we're having a Nobel Prize dialogue in Africa. So it's, it's a big honor to, to be in South Africa and to collaborate with the University of Pretoria. And um, well, the question is, is rather, why, why, why shouldn't we? It's, 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 uh, it's uh, a, a continent uh, that, that is, uh, in, in, is very dynamic, that, that uh, has a, a huge potential where there are very many young people that we want to reach. And uh, so um, we, um, we are uh, very, very um, happy and, and, and honored uh, to do that. So, so um, we, we uh, and then we think that uh, the, the, the question of the 
future of work, as, as we just discussed, uh, combined also with the, the future of education and access to education is obviously a, a, a key topic to, to address in, in, a, in, in a country with, with uh, such a, a, young, a young population. And, and, uh, and what, is, what we, have, we hope to achieve is also by combining, as I mentioned before, we have a, um, a physics laureate, we have peace laureates, and we have economics laureates that, that gives really all these different perspectives together with very accomplished speakers, um, not, not only from South Africa, but also from, from other countries. Uh, this is exactly what, what we want to achieve, to, to look at diff different perspectives in terms of disciplines, in terms of geography, in, in terms of, uh, you know, gl global combined with local perspectives. So, um, and, and, and not least inspire young people to, to, uh, to, to learn, to, to uh, uh, follow their, their curiosity, to, to ask questions and to, to hopefully um, have a, a rewarding life and stimulating life. Yeah, absolutely. And on that topic of inspiration, uh, Professor Schmidt, I'm going to leave you with the last word. And I know in cosmology, there's really one stable number, that zero, either you're, you're growing or decaying. I suppose a bit like uh, this COVID time and we've been obsessed with the R naught and the R number. But at this time of crisis and in the spirit of not letting a good crisis go to waste, there is a generation who are entering academia, who are entering the world of work for the first time in this state of flux globally. What's your message to them? Well, I think, uh, as you say, never uh, let a good crisis go to waste. And so this is an opportunity for us to actually fix a bunch of things more quickly than we were prepared to. So let's look at inequality. We understood and understand that there are barriers and uh, uh, Professor Coupe, you know, described just the internet connectivity. Let's think about the barriers that we know we need to address and let's emerge from this crisis and fix those now rather than waiting for 10 or 20 years. And then whether or not it's education, but it could also be sustainability. Why not when we're gonna to have to go through and invest on a bunch of new technologies, digital and otherwise, why not push uh, for sustainability? So we're doing this remotely. I'm not traveling to Africa. Normally I'd be on a jet plane and burning a couple tons of, CO, of, of fuel and CO2 into the atmosphere. I'm not doing that. And it's more inclusive because I can do more events of this. Now, occasionally we're gonna to have to get together and meet in person, we can't do everything, but there are many, many things we can learn from this crisis. And we can use it as that chance, that chance to make things better now, rather than to kick it into the never-never as we normally do. And people, our young people need to be optimistic because in the same way, we have been able to go through and do these amazing experiments with put a helicopter on Mars, we've measured gravitational waves, we've actually seen a picture of a black hole now. That's all happened in the last few years. We can really do almost anything if we put our minds to it, but we must put our collective minds to it and do it and work as sort of team Earth to uh, address these major problems. And we should be optimistic, but it doesn't mean we don't have to put our sort of uh, shoulder to the wheel and make things actually happen and change.
fantastic message of hope and inspiration. Professor Brian Schmidt, thank you very much. Uh, as we reach the end of our time, uh, Laura Spreckman, CEO of the Nobel Outreach, and Professor Tawana Coupe, Principal and Vice-Chancellor of the University of Pretoria, talking about the future of work uh, ahead of the Nobel Dialogues uh, should be a superb event. Do stream it and uh, ensure that you're part of this conversation as we look to build back better after the coronavirus pandemic.